0: Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida and Craig in the Florida Phoenix. FloridaPhoenix.com every week writes a column there. You can follow along at Twitter. That's the easiest way to know when there's new material posted from Craig. He's on Twitter at Craig Times. I'm on Twitter at Chad Scott. Two D's and Chad, two T's and Scott. And you're back to a popular or let's call it reoccurring topic phosphate yeah, that, mining.
1: well that's that's sort of the point is re, the recurring is the is the point of it i'd start out by talking about this guy who used to tell j- lots of jokes at a summer job i had and one of his favorite topics was monty python and he told us about this monty python sketch about deja vu that the guy says we're going to talk about deja vu and then suddenly he start things start recurring to him over and over and over again and mm-hmm. it blows his mind and so that's, I've remembered that while reading that there had been another pollution notice sent out about an incident involving one of our phosphate mines. Specifically, it's gypsum stack. There had been a tear in the liner. Some of the acidic process water on top of the gypsum stack might have gotten out, and it just like it all comes back all over again because yeah. you know we're dealing with the Piney Point mess because Piney Point's another phosphate uh, gypsum stack where they've had a problem with with a pollution discharge, as they like to say. We had the thing with the uh, the sinkhole that opened up underneath the gypsum stack at the mosaic plant near Mulberry. The big one, of course, was in 1997, where they had a a dike that failed and the acidic water cascaded down into a creek that flowed into the Alify River, and it killed everything in its path for mm. 42 miles. Uh, you know, not just fish, but also alligators and even trees on the banks died. And, and it's just like it, over and over and over again, you know, that the... the the phosphate folks say, oh, we, we're we subjected to some really strict regulations. It's like, well, if you're subjected to really strict regulations, why do you keep screwing up? Yeah. And why do we keep having this sense of deja vu of living over and over again through the same phosphate pollution crisis? Yeah. So that was sort of the... We talked uh, more in depth
0: about phosphate mining in the Florida Springs episode from earlier this summer. That was a a good one if you want to go back and and listen to that. People who are fresh to this podcast or or episode, Gypstack, real quick, uh, explain what that is.
1: When they uh, dig the phosphate out of the ground and they have to process it in order to turn it into fertilizer. And in the processing, uh, they create a lot of waste. I think it's Five tons of waste for and every time. I I water hate water. to
0: interrupt you because I asked you a question. I'm going to interrupt you. Reading your article, that was the takeaway for me that was the the mind blower. The waste to useful product is five to one. Five parts yeah. waste for one part phosphate fertilizer, which is just outrageously inefficient. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. And 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 because that waste is somewhat radioactive, mm-hmm. the EPA has said pretty consistently, not all the time, but pretty consistently that they can't use it for anything. They can't use it for building roads. They can't use it for building materials. They have to just stack it up. And so if you drive through central Florida, you'll see these big mountains 200 feet high. Well, that's the phosphogypsum stack. That's all the waste from the phosphate processing. Yeah. It's toxic. And, it's a toxic a mountain. mountain. Yeah. Right. And on top of the mountain is, are these ponds, you know, 80 acres or so in size. That's full huge. Of the water that they've used in the process, and some of it they're able to recycle and use again, but some of it just sits up there and either evaporates or collects rainwater, which is what makes it really dangerous. Right. but or whenever it's the rainy season leaks out, and there's yeah. a, there's mm-hmm. a chance that they'll overwhelm the the dike that holds it in and just start cascading out. Or in the you know, as we saw in what was it 2016, a sinkhole opens up underneath and sucks all the water down into the aquifer, and the the sort of the motivation for doing this column is mosaic which is i think the largest phosphate company in the world wants to expand the gypsum stack that had the sinkhole under it they want to make it instead of closing it down they want to make it bigger by 230 acres so um they're in the permitting process for that right now and uh, uh some people have made it clear they're not happy about that
0: You can read all about that. An interesting um, background also on the history of phosphate mining in Florida that uh, I was not aware of before reading Craig's latest article there at the Florida Phoenix, FloridaPhoenix.com. Well, uh, last week, I guess it was sea turtles. This week, Craig, we've Mm -hmm. got gopher tortoise. George Heinrich is a gopher tortoise biologist over in your neck of the woods. How'd
1: you meet George and uh, wrestle him onto the podcast this week? Well, uh, gopher tortoises are a big topic for uh, environmental stories in Florida because the places they like to live, this, those sort of elevated, sandy places, are good places to build houses. So an awful lot of gopher tortoises have wound up getting in the way of development plans. And uh, as a result, they have become a an imperiled species. And so George, being an expert, is someone I've consulted frequently on stories and columns writing about gopher tortoises. That's good to it. George, let me start off by asking you uh, uh, about something that kind of blows my mind, which is how frequently do people find gopher tortoises
2: and think they belong in the water? More often than you would think. I hear about that monthly from different colleagues. Oh, Lord. (laughs) uh, Preserve personnel and so on that they found somebody who kept trying to put a gopher tortoise back into a lake or back into a bay or whatever, thinking that all turtles must be able to swim. Of course, we know that's not the case.
1: Yeah. So, so tell us about the, the gopher tortoise, which I, for some reason, I feel the need to say the lowly gopher tortoise, Mm -hmm. but it's not lowly at all. It's actually nature's landlord, isn't it?
2: It it is. It's an imperiled species that uh, occurs in upland habitats throughout the uh, southeastern United States. And, uh, real sandy soils and and xeric habitat, places where it can uh, get abundant grasses and low-growing ground cover and fruiting plants uh, when they're in season, things like hog plums and and gopher apple and and pawpaw. And it's uh, considered a keystone species uh, or ecosystem uh, environmental engineer uh, in that it digs this extensive burrow system that provides shelter from uh, extreme temperatures, fire, and predators for tortoises, as well as about 365 other species uh, range wide. So there are pretty significant species in the habitats where they're found.
0: It is amazing the number of species that depend on its burrows. And if you've ever seen a gopher tortoise burrow and living here on Amelia Island with just the sort of uh, geology, you described, George the the sandiness and the you know the prickly pear and all these sort of things for the gopher tortoise to eat those burrows. You couldn't stick your arm down one and touch the the, the end of it. I mean, they not that you should even try and do that, obviously, <laughs> but just to give some sense of how deep they are. These are not twelve inches deep or something like that. You can see to the end of them. Gopher tortoises, they are really built for digging they've got the the claws and the long legs relatively speaking for a turtle and uh when you you see them digging they can they really go to town in the sand
2: they do they the burrows uh the tunnel is actually quite long you know it varies with the, the individual tortoises some of them might be just eight nine feet down but there's records of 40 feet or so those but are think extremes. About that. Jeez. So more, more typical or average, I'd probably say it'd be about a 15-foot burrow and maybe the end, the terminus of it's maybe six, eight feet yeah. underground above the water table.
0: Still, for an animal that's, what, 14, 16, 20 inches long, maybe for a big one, I mean, that is an enormous, enormous tunnel. And, you know, you talk about people trying to put them in the water I have seen them on the beach here on Amelia Island. It is, it is a rare sight, but it is uh, interesting when you see the tortoise on the beach and, you know, I, I can see how tourists would think that, um, you know, not knowing any better, they, they belong in the water, but like we we found out in the the sea turtle episode without the flippers, they're not going to do good in the water. And, And obviously they're, they're not designed for
2: that in Florida. Is their range the entire state? Um, they're found in all 67 counties. Of course, you know, when you look at these small maps and field guides, little range maps that are the size of a postage stamp, it looks like it's all over the state, but they're just in the appropriate habitats within the state. So things like scrub and scrubby flatwoods and longleaf pine, turkey oak, sandhill, and uh, xeric flatwoods mm-hmm. and so on would would have gopher tortoise populations. And those, those areas are pretty. Are biologically rich I mean, gopher tortoises significantly contribute to upland biodiversity through that burrow system that it provides for uh, that other animals can use and through its role as a uh, a seed disperser you
1: know you mentioned about the other the other animals that find shelter in their burrows are some of them also endangered
2: some of them are uh endangered or threatened or species of special concern. so there's different designations whether you're looking state by state or federally but there are things like gopher frogs that that use uh, gopher tortoise burrows that are a protected species as well so it's not just uh frogs and and lizards and other things that are out there but it's it's mostly invertebrates probably about 300 of the 365 are invertebrates and you're not going to find them all in one location this is looking at it range wide diversity there can include uh, venomous snakes and there's been documented uh juvenile alligator that went down into hmm. a burrow. Hmm. Diamondback rattlesnakes and, and birds I've, tra- I've trapped down in burrows sampling what's going in and out of burrows and even caught a bird in one. So I'm sure it was going in chasing an insect.
0: Something I didn't realize about the, the gopher tortoise until reading one of Craig's books, I believe it was in Florida, but they were a historic food
2: source at one point in Florida. That's true. There's a long history of human exploitation with with gopher tortoises people ate them well they eat tortoises and turtles all over the world but they ate gopher tortoises and they would use a a, a wire long uh, rod of metal with a little hook at the end that they'd run it down into the burrow and it was basically fishing and you'd feel around to hear this tap 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 and then they'd work that little hook around so they could get it just underneath the shell above the hind leg and then slowly pull it out hmm. uh, and you know, occasionally they were hurt coming out, but they were going to be killed and, uh, and eaten. So they had a, a long history, and it wasn't even until 1972 that the state wildlife agency put a ban on the sale and export. And uh, from that time on, there were various close seasons which kept getting uh, longer wow. and longer, and bag limits, so you could only have so many. Uh, tortoises and throughout you know as the process went on there was uh, harvesting prohibited in the national forests and more recent things like trying to address uh gopher tortoise relocation guidelines uh from development sites and and then more recent threats now like with some of these cases that keep popping up where people are painting tortoises which is not not healthy for the, the the turtle and uh, they actually had to prohibit that as a regulation in 1986. But you, you hear horrible stories of things that people do to individual tortoises, like setting them on fire or blowing them up with explosives or on holidays or, oh, or pa- painting, painting their shells and and so on. And that might be just one tortoise here, or one tortoise there. But let me remind you that populations are made up of ones. Yeah. so we can't afford to be losing one here and one there
0: well and the just unimaginable cruelty involved in that you know you don't need more than one case of child abuse or animal abuse or rape or incest to know that it's terrible I mean one is plenty now the the case of painting shells is interesting why is that so harmful you know that is paint what's a big why is that so harmful to go for tortoise specifically but but turtles more generally?
2: That that gets on the scales and and gets between the the scales and uh, can uh, impede uh, growth or retard growth and cause uh, health issues. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a, a type of scientist that studies uh, those types of uh, of health concerns, mm. but that's not not something that's in their best interest. There's a lot of turtle races, mostly box turtles, but I've seen pictures of uh, gopher tortoises in them, and these are mostly in the the Midwest. There's probably five, 600 or so of these these uh, races. Uh, they got bigger problems than just the painting because these animals are being collected and then re- painted and then just dumped mm-hmm. wherever or released. But it happens here in Florida on a regular basis. If you get the um, uh, FWC updates or you go on their Facebook page, every so often there's another another tortoise that's been painted that FWC is trying to find out who who did it. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think the most recent was a couple of weeks ago where they found one that had been painted pink for no apparent Yeah, I saw reason. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, when Chad was bringing up about people eating them, I think he was specifically talking about in the 1930s where people were calling them Hoover Chickens.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They were calling them Hoover's Chickens. I don't know the exact quote, but uh, President Hoover had, was talking about the economy turning around and said, uh, soon there'll be uh, two chickens in every pot and a car in every garage or something along that line. And so the only two chickens... Floridians had were gopher tortoises, which were abundant at that time. <laughs> and uh, any way you can prepare chicken, you can prepare uh, gopher tortoise. Really? So uh, up until uh, July of 1988, uh, you could still uh, harvest tortoises. It had a, a shorter, uh, a long close season and a short open season and a small bag limit. But finally, under pressure from the gopher tortoise council and other uh, conservation NGOs, the uh, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission shut down the, the legal harvest
1: which moves more slowly, the gopher tortoise or the state game commission people? <laughs> you don't have to answer that. I, I think what, we
2: all know the answer to that question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask what may be a ridiculous question, but considering we're we're looking at uh, fishing for Goliath grouper again, and there's been seasons brought back for bears and all sorts of things, is there any movement to try and open a season on, on gopher tortoise no. again in Florida? No, no, oh, that, thank God.
2: That's, yeah. that's come and gone. That won't happen. Again, this this species is in dire straits, uh, mostly from habitat loss and habitat fragmentation. My my particular interest, uh, specific interest in in tortoises is fragmented small populations. So I've been working with uh, a population of gopher tortoises at Boyd Hill Nature Preserve, which is in uh, South St. Petersburg uh, here on the Gulf Coast. We've been working on on doing uh, counts. Uh, surveys of tortoises and where they live in the preserve since 1991 it's a it's a small population in the 90s I marked about uh, 126 tortoises there and by around 2000 I pretty much had marked all the ones I was coming across and I had shifted interest and was working on or another species of turtle diamondback terrapins but in 2018 uh, we restarted the project with Dr. Jeff Gessling came down from Auburn University and started teaching at Eckerd College. And he's a gopher tortoise specialist, really bright guy. And we partnered up and we've restarted marking tortoises. And I think we're approaching 200 of them since June of 2018. And we've actually come across nine that I marked in the 1990s. Wow. Wow. One one of them that I had radiographed, took an x-ray of in the late 90s. It had eggs. And then a year or two ago, we x-rayed it, and it had, uh, had eggs again. So gopher tortoises are, like most turtles, will continue to breed well into their later years.
1: Yeah. How long do they live, generally?
2: Well, we can safely say 60 years. It's probably, oh probably more than that. When somebody's had populations marked long enough, we'll, uh, we'll get a better feel. Archibald Biological Station has, I think, some of the oldest uh, uh, marked tortoises.
0: I am fortunate to not see gopher tortoise every week, but a a couple times a month for sure here on Amelia Island where they are still all over the place despite all the development pressure. The day we are recording this podcast, yesterday I helped one across the street. So they're uh, around me and a wonderful animal to see. But you talked about them being imperiled. What are the population figures today compared with uh, where they have been in the past and, and should be in their historic
2: numbers. That's a question I get asked a lot, and I'd be I'd be just guessing. I prefer to say I don't know the exact number. FWC has some estimates, but I don't know how accurate uh, those are. But clearly, there's been a significant loss in the numbers of of tortoises. You can you can go to places where tortoises used to occur and they're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've either been poached out or the Habitat has not been managed properly. I mean, it needs to have a prescribed fire and there needs to be thinning of invasive yeah. trees and eradication of or control, at least, of invasive non-native plant species. Uh, those are the most important actions that could be undertaken to help gopher tortoise uh, populations. But their numbers are dropping and it's it's habitat loss like it is for, for so many species. Mm-hmm.
0: And for, there are rules, however... Rules. Okay. For development in Florida, there are rules and whether or not they're followed or enforced are are, are two totally different subjects, but there are relocation guidelines for developers when they want to develop property with gopher tortoise burrows and and gopher tortoises on them. What are those guidelines and how are they uh, effective or ineffective in protecting the tortoise? So that's,
2: that's actually a big uh, question and I'll kind of give a, an overview. Back in the 30s and 40s and you know, all through the 60s, it was pretty much do what you want. You could harvest as many torches as you want and, and eat them. And then in the late 80s, they started these uh, mitigation parks. The Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission started mitigation parks. So developers would buy mitigation credits by uh, paying into a fund which helped purchase these preserves, there's, I don't know, eight or nine of them around the state They have tortoises on them. Uh, a lot of them have, have this upper respiratory tract disease uh, that we were so concerned about in the 90s and 2000s and don't seem to be that much concerned about anymore. Tortoises are in pretty dire straits. So as these habitats or pieces of property are being developed, you would pay into a fund and that would allow you to bulldoze over those tortoises and bury them alive. And uh, that was the best, that was an improvement over what was allowed before. So yeah. at least we were getting something, but it didn't take long to realize that we were getting a very small uh, return on this. I mean, we were, there was a huge net loss of, of habitat and, uh, and tortoises as a result. Then in more recent years, they started doing these massive relocations used to be, you could only relocate tortoises from 50 miles north uh, up to 50 miles North or South of the site that they came from that was increased to 100 miles north or south and ended up where tortoises could be coming from daytona beach and sent all the way over the western panhandle as long as it wasn't more than 100 miles north or or south so lots of tortoises going to different preserves that are uh, authorized recipient sites one of them that's had considerable success and has received a lot of tortoises is the negosi plantation up in the florida panhandle where uh, uh, Matt Oresko is working with a team to restore this habitat and and uh, reintroduce gopher tortoises. There's a lot of heavy poaching up in those areas and other rural areas back in the, the day. So I'm not sure if I answered the question the way you wanted, but sure. So well, when, when a
0: developer wants to put a condo up here, uh, and, and I I spoke to a developer recently. On Amelia Island in Fernandina Beach, and his parcel, his latest parcel, is a quarter mile from the beach. It's n- maybe three acres, and he said, "Oh yeah, I moved forty-two turtles off this uh, property, and was proud yeah, of it." That's pretty high density.
2: Uh, of it was. It's, yeah, it's right
0: next it. to a state park, so I mean, this was premier, primo. Yeah. Tortoise habitat where, and where did they move the tortoises to? I, I have no idea. And I doubt that he knows either, because I'm sure he just called whatever state office that uh handles that. And you know, they came in and I don't know, is there a tortoise wrangler and
2: they just yeah, round him up and he, put he them kn- on a, yeah, he knows the details of where they went because it's not just uh make a phone call and it's taken care of. You've got a contract with a environmental consulting firm really have the property surveyed, authorized, uh uh, extractors to come out and, and either trap these or backhoe these animals out so you need a backhoe operator and it involves permits and uh, recipient sites signing off so it's it's he knows exactly what it cost them and, and Inter- where- well, I'll, I'll follow
0: up with him for sure I did I yeah. I'm happy to hear I guess it's that complicated and arduous how do these individuals do typically once they've been relocated
2: We've been relocating tortoises. We, the, the environmental yeah. community, have been relocating tortoises since the 80s. And, you know, there were lots of uh, failures and, and problems But in the past, but they've gotten a lot better at doing this with uh, doing these these uh, soft releases instead of just taking tortoises in and dump them. Yeah. they have maybe a whole area uh, encased with hay bales or something and supplemental feeding or whatever it might be be required and then after so many months they'll they'll take away the barriers and the tortoises can uh, can roam. The thing to remember though, in the end, is after all that process and the tortoise is done, there's been a net loss of habitat. And all the other species associated with that burrow are, unless they leave when the construction starts, they're buried alive.
1: Great point. Great point. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, that that when they were paying to to pave over the the tortoise burrows, they were paving over the 300 or so other animals that were in there and they all smothered. That's right. And then when, when they relocate the tortoises, they're not relocating the other animals in the burrow. It's just the tortoises.
2: Right. And I'm sure if they came across an indigo snake or a pine snake, something listed, they, they would likely move that as well. But all that has to be approved by the state yeah. wildlife agency.
0: Not to get too philosophical or bleak, but Think about a society and a culture and an economic system whose solution to dealing with wild animals is to bury them alive and imagine the suffering, the pain, the fear that these animals experience while they're being suffocated. They are living creatures and humanities or developers in Florida, our solution is to just bury them alive. So uh, we can now I'll, continue.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll say that uh, I was involved with that when FWC came up with that uh, back around. I want to say that was in the late '80s. I was the co-chair of the Gopher Tortoise Council at the time. We uh, we ended up supporting that, uh, not because we wanted to support it, mm-hmm. but because it was ten times better than what we were getting before. We were getting nothing. They just yeah. buried the tortoises. Now they're going to bury the tortoises, and at least there's going to get some mitigation parks. So that wasn't a popular decision, but one that the board and I made that will provide the letter of support. But mm-hmm. it didn't take too long before we realized that this this mitigation stuff is just a, still a net loss of, of tortoises as we of habitat as we talked about, and a lot of other species. So that happened uh, in the in the late '80s, and it's something I think about you know every once in a while how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of tortoises were actually buried alive just so that uh, some developer can make a buck.
0: Yeah.
1: And and we could get a new Walmart or a, you know a new subdivision. Do you think having that many gopher tortoises buried alive set the stage or spurred the loss of population to make them even more imperiled than they were before? Obviously, you lost habitat, but that was a, right. a net loss of population too.
2: Yeah, there yeah, certainly is. I mean, there's there's concerns over uh, minimum viable uh, population sizes and minimum reserve sizes, and uh, uh, the Gopher Tortoise Council has a white paper on that. And uh, I think the numbers you need something like 250 adults and uh, maybe about 250 acres. To have a population that could persist out a uh, hundred years. I think I'm saying that correctly. So some of these populations are uh, are much more valuable primary populations. And then some of these smaller populations uh, of less than 50 adults, those are still important because these preserves provide welcome green space, particularly in urban areas where people can go in and, and relax and enjoy the outdoors, but experience gopher tortoises in the wild even though it's a, a population of less than 50 and uh it's possible sustainability is pretty uh, pretty limited so i'm interested in these small preserves boyd hill's not a tiny preserve in in st pete but it's it's you know it's got about 250 acres of uplands but doesn't have 250 tortoises you know if you put some effort into it with prescribed burns and removing invasive oaks that are creeping in from lack of fire and you get rid of the uh, various non-native species that are going in and uh, competing with the native forage species, then these populations probably have a have a chance. But what their real importance is, I think, is as an educational site for people to understand the importance of acquiring and protecting upland habitats, the importance of fire or various, uh, whether it's prescribed fire or an ecological process from a a lightning strike. So these are are very important uh, uh, educational locations yeah. where these uh, secondary support populations uh, occur.
0: We don't talk enough about the historic importance of fire for these scrubby sort of open territories that the, the gopher tortoise needs. But if you just stop and think about it, you know, a gopher tortoise is not going to be able to walk through a dense forest without. You, you say invasive oaks, and we think, well, how are oaks invasive? They're such a great tree. Well, they are a great tree, except when they get too thick, and that's not what that habitat is supposed to be like. You know, you think about those open habitats that the gopher tortoises need because they don't have long legs. They aren't like deer where they can just jump over things or get through thick patches of uh, saw palmetto or, you know, cabbage palm or what, whatever, you know, heavy underbrush, they need that open area, and, and uh, it's interesting to think about that because, again, for 150 years in this country, we have been anti-fire when it comes to nature, and not looked at. It, we've looked at fire as damaging as opposed to productive. And so many of the uh, ecological areas in, in Florida and the habitats don't only you know want fire; I mean, they need fire to
2: yeah, specific habitats. Properly. So some habitats need fire; other habitats, fires are very Destructive. When you're thinking about tortoises, gopher tortoises evolved in dry upland habitats that were maintained by fire. But if you think about geometric tortoises, which is a a highly endangered smaller tortoise species that lives in South Africa, there's not a lot of them, maybe a thousand or something. I think I'm correct on that. That number, they had fire go through a preserve and it killed a number of tortoises because those tortoises evolved in a habitat that did not have fire as an ecological process. But in the case of gopher tortoise habitat, if you had increased frequency of prescribed fires, that would uh, restore and maintain the open habitat cycle nutrients and encourage growth of diverse tortoise forage species uh subsequently increasing uh biodiversity yeah yeah so it's a really interesting uh uh, relationship Uh, speaking of
1: relationships talk to us a little bit about the social life of a gopher tortoise how they uh, find mates and also do they battle rivals
2: (laughs) yeah well they live they live in uh groups so you might have some males there's usually a dominant male you might have a number of uh of females it's not you know hard fast always this way but generally there's a, a bunch of females and some males and the uh, larger males tolerate in my experience smaller males up to a certain point and then they run them off uh, and that starts with combat so they'll slam into each other they use this long extended bony projection underneath their chin so it's like a like a shoehorn almost uh, a lot of tortoise species have them and they're used for combat and they'll slam into each other and then flip you stick that horn underneath the tortoise and flip it over onto its back so you <laughs> might be out walking in the woods and you'll you'll hear this banging i've heard this before and follow the sound and find a couple male tortoises combating and uh you might find that the one of them the loser on its back in the sun and it's defecating and it's hot and frothing from the mouth and supposed to leave nature alone, but I take those tortoises and I move them into the shade and pour some, you know, pour some water over them and they will uh, recover. But, you know, in recent years, we've learned that it's not just the males that fight. I saw some combat one day and I waited till it was all over and they were walking away and I looked over and uh, it was two females. So what had happened was I heard this noise. I went and found these tortoises. I watched from the distance when one got flipped over, I noticed, Hey, that, that one that got flipped over is a female. It had a flat underside. We call it the A shorter horn. It was a female. So the winning female came back and flipped her back over correctly, and she wandered off. So I quickly went over and grabbed the other one, and it was a female. And a few years back, I saw some video at a gopher tortoise council meeting of little juveniles, almost hatchling size, combating, much like you'd see black bears or grizzly bear cubs uh, playfully fighting and, yeah. and learning learning these skills. So this isn't not just limited to just the male tortoises, the adults.
1: It's so interesting that the female came back and flipped her rival back over, so she'd be okay.
2: Yeah, I like I like to joke around and say that you know the females will combat too, but they're much gentler about uh, it. Can <laughs> they right themselves if they're on their back like that? They can, but not as easy as species with longer necks, like uh, softshell turtles, which can flip right back. Uh, right back over. What are the
0: population <coughs> numbers like and, and, and where are they found outside of Florida? I mean, I'm guessing Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina have populations as well. How are, how are they doing and being managed there compared to what's going on in Florida?
2: Well, the, as I said, they, they occur in six states in the southeastern coastal plain. So Florida and southern Georgia is their stronghold. Uh, they're listed by FWC, our state wildlife agency, as threatened in Florida. Each state has a various designation. They might be endangered in South Carolina. They only occur in very southern South Carolina, Mm -hmm. uh, only as far north as Aiken, southern part of the state. Then they're in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Very small populations, only in the toe of the boot in Louisiana. And then in Mississippi, where the uh, Tom Bigby River comes down into Mobile Bay, so that's uh, Alabama, rather, Mm -hmm. west of the Tom Bigby River and Mobile Bay. So that population plus in Louisiana is federally listed as a a threatened species. Mm -hmm. And it's been a candidate for years for federally listed as threatened range uh, wide. I'm not sure what the current last time I checked on that was a year ago. So I'm not sure what the current status is for that proposal. So they are in a lot of trouble uh, west of the Tom Bigby River. Very small distribution in southern South Carolina. Of course in florida and even georgia which is rapidly developing those populations are severely threatened so the best thing we can do for tortoises at this point is to purchase as much upland habitat and have it uh, connected i mean if you if you purchase fragmented populations that that's great but if you can purchase a hundred acre piece that connects two other pieces then that's that's a a lot better situation mm-hmm. Florida tour wildlife, like of a off. Florida wildlife corridor.
0: Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> yeah. takes us back to an episode from the archives, <laughs> and why that idea is so important.
2: Yeah, that'd be a great that'd be a great thing. And, but uh, I, I really wish we started this wildlife corridor concept back in the '50s and '60s in Florida or earlier. Uh, now land is so valuable and so yeah. difficult to connect all these pieces, but any efforts are are worthwhile.
1: Where can people go and see gopher tortoises if they want to see them? And and what time of day is the best time for for seeing them?
2: Well, it depends upon, uh, for time of day, it depends upon time of year. So, you know, if you're going out in the summer, good time to go is in the morning or pre-dusk, you know, later in the day. But in the colder months, you might have better luck finding them in the early afternoon. And then, you know, there's you don't have to drive very far if you live in Florida to find a place with gopher tortoise populations. Any state parks with upland habitats probably have them. Nature Conservancy yeah. Preserves have them. If you're here in uh, at Tampa Bay, or I'll speak about Pinellas County, where, where I live, uh, you can see them at Brooker Creek Preserve, Weedon Island Preserve, right around the parking lot, Boyd Hill on the trails. Boyd Hill is one of the easiest places to see gopher tortoises because you just walk out and they're 10 feet off the side of the trail and they just mm-hmm. keep eating because they're used to people and bicycles. Walking. Last time I
1: was there, I saw three of them in about an hour. Yeah. yeah.
2: My good days were somewhere around 17 or 18 Wow, in, wow. in a, a couple few uh, hours. And we regularly see little hatchlings there. So they're, they're oh, breeding and doing pretty well.
0: Up here by me, uh, Amelia Island State Park, Little Talbot Island State Park. And to reference another episode from the archive, American Beach you want to see gopher tortoise go to Nana Dune at american beach you're not guaranteed to see one but it's pretty likely and, and like you said what's great is they're out in the broad daylight this is not like something you've got to uh stay up overnight to see or wake up at four o'clock in the morning they're, they're just
1: out and yeah. about doing their thing no it's, uh, if it's you not were,
2: hard to find them
1: mm-hmm. if you were in sarasota county you'd go to like what Myakka river state park probably
2: yeah, any upland areas. Manasota um, Key. Um, Sarasota County has a number of great uh, preserves and parks, and several of them are uplands that have, have uh, tortoise populations yeah. on them. Fort so, Clinch. See them? Uh,
0: yeah, here What's on the that? island is another one. Fort Clinch State Park here on uh, Amelia Island is another great place to to spot gopher tortoise.
2: Uh, egmont Key on the mouth of Tampa Bay. You take the boat out there and walk around and the tortoises will be there when you get off the boat to greet you. Right? <laughs> I've se- I've climbed up to the top of that lighthouse back when you used to be able to do that, and I've seen like forty plus tortoises at one time in wow. the field below, like cattle. Yeah.
1: That amazed me when the, when I went out to Egmont Key with my with my kids and their scout troop. That there were so many gopher tortoises out there. You don't think of them being on an island, but
2: there they are. A lot of, a lot of tortoise, uh, tortoise species living on islands. Of course, you know, we think of things like Galapagos tortoises or Aldobrins in the southern and uh, the Pacific. But how they get to some of these, these islands, you know, there's possibilities of them drifting out there and getting established. And, and I've read uh, where they thought that perhaps the ones on Egmont Key were introduced. Um, there's some old herpetological survey work, a publication that didn't list gopher tortoises or box turtles I think maybe 100, 150 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. But they're certainly there, both species in abundance now. So it's possible that gopher tortoises were introduced as a food source back when we used to have uh, uh, people living out there and soldiers out there and so on. I'm not sure how that would play into the box turtles because those aren't healthy to eat since they eat (laughs) poisonous mushrooms. But maybe they were brought in as pets for the kids or something. I have no idea. They could have also go for tortoises gotten out there on their own because tortoises are found occasionally floating, floating in the
1: bay. Wait now. Okay. So we've told people don't put them in the water, but you're saying they do show up floating in the bay sometimes.
2: Mike, you know, how do they get there? I don't, I don't know. Maybe they wash in. I've, I've gotten rattlesnakes from like Lassing Park and, uh, uh different, uh, city parks in St. Petersburg that we thought maybe washed in or got caught in the the waves and current up like Wheaton Island or something. So, you know, tortoises, gopher tortoises live in coastal dunes. That's one of the habitat types with coach whips and mm-hmm. Eastern dimeback rattlesnakes and so on. And just this week, I had a video sent to me by a, a friend and colleague from uh, friends of Stump Pass State Park. And uh, there was a tortoise wandering around in the in the uh, edge of the water. You could see the tracks on the sand kept going in and out. And finally, uh, some uh, i think a ranger picked it up and moved it back up into the dunes and it went back to its to its burrow so why they go in that water uh, who knows
0: okay here, here's one for you because a lot of people will experience this you see a gopher tortoise crossing the road you want to stop you want to help it across what's the best way to go about doing that
2: the uh, first thing i always tell people is safely park and get out of the car there's people who are hurt and even killed trying to move tortoises off of roads I've, I've come close trying to move a spotted turtle off a road in South Carolina. And when I got back, a truck went by. When I got back in, the guy I was working with said that you couldn't have slid a piece of paper between the mirror of that truck and my face oh, when I was wow. picking up that spotted turtle. So it, it happens. Very, very dangerous. Um, but you get out of the car and pick this tortoise up, hand one hand on each side. Depending on the species, different ways to handle them to be safe. But you can grab a gopher tortoise in two sides and move it off the road in the direction that was going. If you move it back to where it was coming from, it's going to cross the road again. And so I usually take them again, 20, yeah, 50 feet back in and let them go.
0: Yeah, the one that I was trying to, to keep across the, the street yesterday and I've, I've heard that before and i know that and that's what i try and do but there was this perfect natural area bike path no one gonna bother you but it was bound and determined to get across that street so eventually i did move it across the street and it just kept going and it was fine what why are they so determined to stay in that one fixed direction
2: well they, they probably know that area so it may have been crossing that road for 30 years for all we know yeah and uh, yeah. try and get back to its borough or Maybe it's a certain time of year and it knows where a bunch of hog palms should be in fruit or, or mm-hmm. something, but they have this two and a half to three and a half acres they wander around. Most of their activity is very close to the burrow, but they can get a little distance uh, uh, from it. But they can't get too far because when the fire comes, they've got to be able to get back to their burrow.
1: And of course they have to come back and collect the rent from all the all the tenants <laughs> that stay in there. <laughs> that's that's right.
0: <laughs> George Heinrich has been our guest, Gopher Tortoise Biologist. You can find out more about George at Heinrich Ecological Services. That's H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H ecological services.com. George, this has been a, a great conversation about an animal I dearly love and am fortunate enough to see all the time. Thank you so much. Uh thank for inviting us more me on. today. I,
2: I appreciate it. Let let me add one thing. I'd be remiss if sure. I didn't mention the sure. Gopher Tortoise Council. I encourage anybody who wants to learn about tortoises and tortoise conservation to go to gophertortoisecouncil.com. It's uh, been around since 1978. It's a group of researchers and land managers and and general public that are concerned with protecting gopher tortoises and the world in in which they live. We've got our our annual meeting. It's going to have to be virtual again, uh, the 29th of October, but for a, a nominal fee, you can Can register and then uh, listen to all these lectures, uh, various specialists, and know a lot more about their particular topics than I do.
0: I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Thanks so much, George.
2: Thanks, George. Have have a good weekend. Thanks, Craig. Take care. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Gopher tortoise, like I've I've mentioned, Craig, are one of these uh, imperiled species that I am able to see regularly here uh, on Amelia Island, adding so much to the richness of, of life here, like the wood stork is another one I see all the time. And, you know, really take for granted that obviously not everyone does, you know, you're rolling around in Orlando, you're not going to see those. And it's a a real treasure and, and
1: memory when, when a lot of people do see them because they are rare compared to what it used to be. Oh, absolutely. Well, I was camping with my, with my kids and their Boy Scout troop once. And we actually had, a there were several gopher tortoise burrows around but one actually came out and crossed through the campsite. And uh, the kids were just absolutely fascinated. Uh, Unfortunately, then they tried to follow it and it really picked up speed at that point. I didn't, I don't guess I realized how fast a tortoise can move. (laughs) They do go faster (laughs) than
0: you think. And they are not afraid of people. You know, you could, you'll walk by them and they'll duck Mm -hmm. into their shell. But, you know, they do not have a a great fear of, of people like deer or something that would be incredibly Skittish around people. Now, if you do pick one up and try and move it across the road, uh, it will hiss, but it's not going to bite you, and it'll flail.
1: It's have you had one pee on you though? I've not had one pee on me. Fortunately, okay. I've
0: had you know they thrash around a little bit and might scratch yeah. you a little, but an incredibly beautiful animal. And and a, a, again, like we've talked about on a, on a number of recent uh, episodes here with the, the sea turtles and the manatee, one of these species that make Florida
1: what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. What we were talking at the beginning, though, about uh, when I think we I don't think we'd started recording yet about George and I were going out to find a, a gopher tortoise for a photographer who was t- taking pictures. It was John Pendigraph, the guy who shot the photo on the cover of Cattail uh, okay. Panther. Mm-hmm. And we found a gopher tortoise and picked it up and brought it to John to take a picture of. And he had set it up on this special sort of setting so it looked like it was in a studio Mm -hmm. like a photography studio getting a glamour (laughs) shot and uh uh the gopher tortoise did not look happy to be there and uh promptly peed over the entire set (laughs) and we're like okay you've you've registered your objection thank you welcome to florida welcome to florida